Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father, for what you've done at the cross. Thank you this morning, Father God, that you are here with us by your Holy Spirit. Thank you that, Father God, you have washed our sins away. That, Father, you have made us your children and you are Father this morning. We have every right through what Jesus did to be here this morning knowing that we are loved by you and that we are your children and you are our Father. Thank you for it, Lord. Just worship you this morning. We praise you and bless you for what you've done. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah. We just take a moment to thank you, Lord. Thank you and worship you. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Thank you. Hallelujah. Father, I just thank you, Lord, that what is important this morning is what you have done. What you have done, what you have accomplished, and who we are in you. Father, we just invite you now to bring your word alive to us, to allow us to understand this very deep theological truth of what happened at Calvary and on the Resurrection Sunday, Father God. Bring it to light. Bring us to understanding a deeper level of it, Father God, that we may know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. The road to the resurrection is what I want to talk about and, um, and what happened on Calvary. The, the reality of what happened uh, on Calvary is what allows the resurrection to happen. All of the blessings of the resurrection, all of our completeness, our forgiveness of sins, and our being brought into the family of God happened on Sunday because on Friday the crucifixion happened. So in order to go to the resurrection, we have to go through Calvary. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 to 15 when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. I'm going to go through this bit by bit. It's a little bit kind of like a teaching lesson more than preaching about what actually happened at Calvary. So there were charges against us. So what were those charges that were against you and I? Well, 
in those days, they had the Mosaic Law. There's about 600 laws and all. But we also had our own sins, even if the, it was only the Ten Commandments. We failed miserably in that. So we had all of that against us. And we, we really want, we're a people who love justice. We always cry out for justice. When we see something done wrong, we, we expect some kind of justice to be done here. Sometimes justice can turn into vengeance, and that's not the way it was supposed to go. But wanting justice when we see a wrong, our whole, our whole democracy is based on it. God is a just God. We get that from God. So what does it mean that, you know, this was canceled? The word canceled here actually means the wiping away of the printing on the papyrus sheets. They would use papyrus over again. And when they were finished with it, they would wipe off what was written there, use a tool to do it, so that they could use that papyrus again. And what is kind of being said here is that for you and I who have come to a place, hopefully you have, to a place where you have asked Christ to come into your life, you have come to a point of knowing that you're a sinner, that's a big one in today's world, um, to actually come to that understanding and that you want that forgiven, what God does is he literally scrapes it away. So we're brand new and we're, something new is able to be written on that papyrus. Something new is able to be written on you. And it says in scripture about God giving us a new heart and writing on it the precepts of loving God, changing our heart, making us new. And that's what happened when everything was canceled. When Jesus died, the condemning document that was against us was destroyed. John Piper, a theologian, put it like this. He asked, how was this damning record nailed to the cross? Parchment was not nailed to the cross. Like there wasn't some document that they nailed to the cross. Christ was. So Christ became my damning record of bad deeds. He endured my damnation. By his atoning death at Calvary, Jesus Christ completely obliterated the law's demands towards the sinner. Everything you and I were supposed to be and do, Jesus did. And all that that we didn't do and that we weren't was completely obliterated. Thus we have the words of Isaiah that says, the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's a beautiful trans, uh, transaction that went on there. Ever since Genesis, Satan has been corrupting humanity. Genesis 3.15 says, And I, God, will put enmity between you and the woman, meaning between the devil and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So there is this conflict that has been going on ever since the Garden of Eden, and Satan has been corrupting humanity ever since, and thus causing God's judgment that was on him to now be on us because we followed suit and we just started to sin just like the enemy did. Of course, the first thing that happened was a murder. Cain slew Abel. And we've been doing it ever since. Ephesians explains it like this. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. We have to agree to that. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil. People don't know they're obeying the devil. You and I didn't know we were obeying the devil when we were gossiping and hating and slandering and drinking and doing drugs and 
killing and whatever else it was that we were doing. We were obeying the devil. Don't be fooled. The world should not be fooled about what is actually the motivating force behind what's going on in our world. It's not just some kind of, oh, well, that's too bad that they act like that. No, there's actually a force that is pushing people in that direction, and we choose to obey it. The commander of the powers in the unseen world, he is the commander of what's going on out there. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. There's a whole sermon in that. But all of us used to live that way. Yes? Yes, we did. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. Because you have a sinful nature, I have a sinful nature, and it won't be de- that won't be totally dealt with until we are with Christ. You and I are still dealing with that. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger just like everyone else. So the weapon that Satan had to condemn us was the failure to fulfill the righteousness that God required us to do. And, and, and it's a hateful thing because he's, he's provoking people to do these things so they can be condemned. So what was the righteousness we didn't fulfill? In a very simple scripture, Matthew 22 37, Jesus replied. When they asked him, they said, okay, what's really important here, Lord? What's really important? What do we need to do? Because they had all those laws. They had 600 laws. And they're saying, well, what, what do I really need to do here? He said, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And we are all, you and I are all learning how to do that. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of us are learning how to do that. The entire law and all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. I can faithfully say without any hesitation that I have horribly failed at those two things. And I horribly fail on an ongoing basis of trying to fulfill the utmost of these, of what Jesus wanted us to do. The good news is that Jesus fulfilled it for us. That's the good news. Jesus did as a human what no other human being could do. And he did it for you and for I. And and it's something that it's intentional. We have to intentionally, we had an incredible Good Friday service here. One of the best Good Friday services I've ever been in. And you have to be intentional on days like today. We're talking about it before service. Have to be intentional. God, show me this. Deepen us. You don't understand the resurrection. I don't understand the resurrection totally. We have some concepts of it, but it's on days like this that we really say, God, let me hear, let me understand what this all means. But Jesus did what no other human could do. In Hebrews 4.15, this high priest of ours understands our weaknesses. He understands that you fail. He understands that I fail. For he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. Thank God for that. And the enemy was on him every minute of every day of his life, trying to get him to trip up. So Satan's ability to accuse us before God and control us was broken by what was accomplished on the cross because what you couldn't do and what the enemy was going to, and and just hoping that you die in your sin, just hoping because then he could condemn you. And he's also up in, in front of God condemning you. Look at the way, look at, the, look, at, look at that. But he was hoping you would die in your sin. 
The good news is that you didn't. Hopefully all of you have come to a point, like I said, of salvation. So that we have taken on this righteousness. So the enemy's ability to accuse you and say, no, they're mine for eternity. They're mine for eternity. They're mine for eternity. And that's happening. There are people dying in their sin. And the devil has every right at that point to say, that's mine for eternity. I got him. I got her. I got that kid. I got them. I got them. I got them. Jesus came along and said, maybe not. Maybe not. Ephesians says it like this in 2, 4 to 6. But God is so rich in mercy and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated, him in the he- seated, seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ Jesus. And all of a sudden, the devil's ability to take people to hell with him for eternity has been broken. It has been stopped. There's a way out. Satan can no longer accuse us before God because we are in Christ. Every time he tries to accuse us before God, God says, what are you talking about, boy? What are you talking about? They are in Christ. They are perfected. They are forgiven. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be the offering for our sin, so that we could be made right with God through Christ. This is a huge thing. Now, the fact that you and I are not jumping up and down and going crazy with our hair on fire right now means that we don't really understand this. We really don't. That we could sit and go, wow, that's interesting. I'm not expecting you all to have a reaction that, you know, but there is going to be a day where we're going to be jumping around crazy with our hair on fire because we're going to know the totality of this. We will actually experience it. But right now we have faith in it and we believe it and we trust in it for that day. Satan still accuses us, but he accuses us to ourselves. And and one one of the terrible things about that is that we believe him. Trust me, it's not easy. You know it's not easy. He can, he can, you know, condemn us because we still sin. We, we still sin. And, and he's going to come and remind us of everything except what Jesus did. He will remind us of everything you have done or I have done wrong. But he will not remind you of what Jesus has done. And will we'll flood it over. We'll just come in like a flood. What's that beautiful scripture? When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Lord raises up the standards. Beautiful in Psalm 27, it says that God set me upon a rock in your tabernacle where I can gaze upon, I'm paraphrasing, gaze upon your beauty with my head high above my enemies. And that is where we have to go. And that does not happen naturally. You have to fight for that. We're still in a war. There is still a force. The the commander of the forces of what's around us is still trying to cause us to not go to that place. We have to fight for that. We have to take it every day. We still sin. Absolutely, we still sin. But that's where we have to remind ourselves of the cross. That is how we access the forgiveness. We can't just 
say to the enemy, well, I'm just a good person and I think you're just having a bad day telling me all that stuff. We can't do that. We can say, no, you're absolutely right. Everything you're saying about me is absolutely right. We say the devil's a liar. Sometimes he isn't. Sometimes he's telling you the absolute truth. And that's what really hurts us. When he's telling us the negative, horrible truth about ourselves. That's what really gets us. When he's lying and saying all kinds of crazy things that we can kind of go, that's ridiculous and, and whatever. But when he's telling you the truth about yourself, making it vivid and real, that's when we just take a slow walk over to the cross and we go there. We can't get to the resurrection until we go through that. We're still walking. We're still walking towards the resurrection. We're still on that road. And Jesus made a public spectacle, it says, on the cross. And he did that a couple of ways. It said he made a public spectacle out of the enemy. Actually, principalities and powers. And what it's referring to is when Rome had a victory, they would drag some of the main people from the city they conquered through the streets behind the chariot. And they would be in chains and they would be all locked up and it would be just making a mockery out of them. Just saying, we have dominated you. And that's what happened on the cross. Jesus made a public spectacle out of everything that sin was doing to the world. How did he do it? Jesus lived a sinless life. He lived a sinless life. And because of that, we inherit his sinlessness. It's an incredible point. Jesus endured the suffering of the cross. You know Satan was really hoping that that would do him in, that that would make him deny, that that would make him call. And he, you know, he could have called all those angels to save himself. He could have done all that. We don't know how much the enemy knew of what was going on there. But we knew that he was Adam right until the end and Jesus endured it. Philippians says, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. He was obedient where you and I have not been obedient. It's one thing we, everyone in this room can say, we are not fully obedient. Never have been, never will be. It is a striving that we go towards but it's something that we rarely succeed at. It is great when you have those, those moments where God tells you to do something that you maybe don't want to do, and you go ahead and do it. Doesn't that feel great afterwards? It just feels so great. Like, man, I got one in anyway. Got one today. But to have that wonderful ability, imagine how Jesus felt because he was always obedient to his father. And, and when you're obedient to God, you always get something from God for it. You either get a sense or you just get a yes in you or something really wonderful can happen. And no wonder it was so joyful for Jesus because he was always in obedience to his father and his father was always joyful about him. It was this beautiful give and take love relationship that he had. Jesus rising from the dead proved that the resurrection is God's seal of his approval on Jesus. It proved he was who he was. It proved that what he said was true. And it proved that what he promises is real. It proved that he was sinless once again. Because if sin would have been on him, the whole thing wouldn't have worked. God was looking for a sinless, remember in the Old Testament, it says a sinless lamb. 
without spot or blemish. Adam was perfect in the beginning, and then he was corrupted. So God had to go all the way back to the beginning. He had to go all the way back and start over again. So Jesus is the second Adam. Jesus came, hit the same stuff that Adam hit, but Jesus chose and somehow was willing to be obedient and sinless. And he restarted the whole thing. And if he had not done that, the devil would have been able to say, mine, he sinned, because anyone who sins is cursed. Anyone who sins is cursed, and therefore guilty of the judgment of sin. The judgment of sin is eternity without God. Jesus was sinless, and his resurrection proved it because the grave couldn't hold him. He had every right to sit Satan. You got some keys there that belong to me. You've got some keys that locks people up, locks them up for eternity in sin. I'm going to take those, thank you very much, because you can't lock me up because there's no sin on me. I have defeated everything you threw at me, everything you tried to do to me, everything you tried to do to humanity. I came and I defeated it. Now give me the keys and I'm going to start unlocking some people. And he did. He, it said he led captivity captive. He went around and it said some saints of old started to walk around Jerusalem. That must have freaked out a few Jewish people. And he went and all those people who were looking forward, who believed right from Adam, like Eve knew that a, somebody was going to come and was going to take away this sin. She knew it. She thought it was her next son. But it went on and all through history, they were looking forward to this Messiah that was going to come. And all those people who looked forward to that in faith, who tried to live their life in righteousness in hope of this atoning sacrifice that was going to take away their sin. All those people who had been waiting in wherever that waiting space was, Jesus went and unlocked the doors and said, come with me. Because the difference, the only difference is we're looking back to the cross. They looked forward to the cross. That's the only difference. They still had faith. They still had the desire to serve God. It was written on their hearts. God helped them along through the way, gave them a sacrifice system to tell them, yes, it's coming. Yes, a sacrifice is coming that will take away the sins once and for all. So it was a powerful thing, and Jesus just led them all into eternity with him. He took captivity captive, and he's going to do the same thing to you. You're going to die someday. I hate to break it to you all, but you're going to die. Some might be very soon, and some might be longer than you want to be here but the fact is at that point an amazing reality is going to come true is that there is nothing that can hold you in eternity with with the enemy that has been taken away that you will be escorted into the presence of god and whatever sin whatever failures whatever broken humanity that we have has going to will be able to see the full atonement of it and what it gives us which is an eternity with God. But it has to be asked for. It has to be accepted. It just doesn't happen by going to church. It just doesn't happen about knowing about it. It happens when we actually come to the place in our life where we say, Father, I am a sinner who needs forgiveness. That is what has to happen. It's not, I'm kind of a, you know, I'd just like to have a better life. Yeah, that's something. That's worth something. But we really have to come to the point of understanding what happened on that. If sin wasn't something we need to understand and we really need to get acquainted with and understand what it is, what it actually does, 
eternally, if we don't understand that, the cross will not make any sense to us. Jesus didn't die that gruesome, ugly, horrible death just because it was drama. Something horrible had to be dealt with. Something grievous had to be dealt with. And it was sin. And it was ugly. It was horrible. It was a terrible thing. And Jesus showed us just how terrible it is. So for us to all of a sudden just kind of say, oh, well, maybe there's some sin. And you know in our world today, sin is a very foreign concept. It's, it's a word that isn't used. People have no idea what it means in a lot of cases because everyone's truth is their truth and everyone should be able to have their own truth. But the cross says that's not true. There's a horrible thing loose on the world. It's called sin. And it's causing horrible, horrible things to happen. Incredibly cruel and ugly things to happen. And it has an eternal punishment. And Jesus came because he wants to change where you're going for eternity. God, what Jesus did when he came and died and rose again is he, he saw two things. He came so that you can live the life that you were supposed to live here on earth as a human being. What I was living before I knew Christ was not my destiny. <laughs> it was not my destiny. Being drunk, falling down the steps of the Oxford Theater dressed like a drag queen was not my destiny. That was not my destiny. But <laughs> thank God that was not my destiny. And I don't know what ridiculous, horrible thing you were doing before you knew Jesus, but it wasn't your destiny. And God came so that you could actually... <laughs> Bill's back there laughing. He knows the truth of it. But he came so that you could live the life that you were destined to live. And it is a life of power, a life of purpose, a life of destiny, a life of affecting the world around you for good. And he also came so that you could spend eternity where you're supposed to be. Instead of in hell where the devil wants you. And hell is real. I hate that hell is real. I hate it. I really do. I can't get my head around it. I hate it. But the fact is, it exists. And Jesus came and proved that it exists or he wouldn't have done what he did. So we know there is something very serious that we have to take care of before we face our death. Because it says it is appointed for man to die once and then to be judged. Judged? Judged? What about what? About sin. We have to atone for it on this side. We don't get to go to some place and sit there and atone for our sins for 10 years and then all of a sudden get accepted into, he into heaven. That's not how it works. I, in some ways, I wish it was. But in actuality, why would I wish that when Jesus has already done it for us? He's already done it. Why wait in purgatory for 10 years or however many years until you somehow get accepted into heaven when Jesus has already done it? It's already there sitting for us to do that. So he broke when he came and lived his sinless like he, he broke Satan's power to condemn us to hell. And Jesus had something in him that empowered him to overcome the enemy. Now remember this. This is important. Jesus did not have anything more than you have. Jesus came as a human being. He gave up his deity, in the, not his deity, but that holiness, that God side of him to become a human being. But what he did have is he had the Holy Spirit 
without measure. He was fully filled with the Holy Spirit at all times. You and I, hmm, at best, we're working on it. But we got a pretty leaky bucket. Like wherever we go, we're draining out the Holy Spirit somewhere and, it, and, we're, and we get at the end of the day and we wonder how we got through it. But Jesus had it to the full measure. I don't know if you've ever had it when the Holy Spirit comes on you in full measure. Not full measure. I don't know what full measure would really look like. But I know when I have been hit by the Holy Spirit in a capacity that is overwhelming, I, can't, I wasn't able to walk. And I was in a state of glory that was just beyond understanding. But the fact is, you have the same power, which is the Holy Spirit. And this is very important. Luke says 24, and now I will send the Holy Spirit, just as my father promised. Stay here in the city until the Holy Spirit comes and fills you with power from heaven. Jesus had that power from heaven, but in a far greater measure than we ever did. He didn't have the sinful nature either, but he had the flesh. And the devil was constantly tempting his flesh like he did in the desert with hunger and power and all of those things. But you and I have the same thing that Jesus had and we can access that same power that would enable him to live a sinless life. We will not live a sinless life, but we will live one that is less sinful and we will ever increasingly move in a direction of living a more full and perfect life in Christ. I, I mean, you, you know what happened. I remember reading the Bible before I was saved. Never made a, 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 a bit of sense. It made no sense to me. I'd read it and uh, I don't know what they're talking about. All of a sudden, you come to a point of asking God to come into your life. And what happens? All of a sudden, you can understand this book. You know, it starts making sense. I remember my first Bible, it's got all these underlined <laughs> things in it where all of a sudden it's coming alive to you. God is letting you know what it means. That's miraculous. That's incredible. That's like, that's the power of the Holy Spirit. The world doesn't have that. They read the Bible and they come out with some of the most bizarre things about what it means. But the Holy Spirit has come to give us an understanding of what it all means, and to remind us of Christ. So Christ's victory paved the way for God's overcoming Holy Spirit to be in us and in mankind. And this is important. For 3,974 years, that is the, one of the estimations of the time between Adam and Jesus. Who knows actually how long it was? We don't know how long Adam lived. Oh, well, we know how long he lived, but we don't know all of the years that are, that are in there. But nonetheless, we know it's thousands of years. And God was in the garden with Adam. The original intent is that God wanted to live with Adam. And he would come down in the middle of the day, and Adam, how's it going? And Adam said, well, it's great. We planted some trees over there and we did some stuff over there. And we don't know how many years that went on. But it was God's intention to create this incredible thing called a human being, you and I. And of all that God created, he wanted to have communion with you and I, with Adam. And you know what happened. The serpent came in, Adam and Eve got tricked, and all of a sudden... God withdrew, and they were put out of the garden. This beautiful place of communion with God 
They were put out of it. We jump ahead to Moses. God wanted to once again dwell with his people. He wanted to dwell amongst, like in the middle of his people, of the camp of Israel. Exodus 25, have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so I can live amongst them. That was God's intent. Well, you know what happened. Sin stopped it because Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days. Aaron gets scared. Israel gets all confounded. They don't know. They think he's dead. They don't know what happened to him. They don't know what's going on. You can kind of understand what they were feeling. They didn't know what happened. Is he dead up there? The Egyptians, what, what do we do? We're in the middle of the desert. What, what's going on? They panicked. So they said, well, let's get another God. He seems to be gone. Let's get another one. So they threw all their jewelry together and made a God. And Aaron said, I guess... I guess this is what I do. Moses isn't here. I don't know what to do. So that sounds pretty good to me <laughs> because we need some help. And it was horrible. It was horrible. And it caused God to go, hmm. Exodus 33, go up to this land that flows with milk and honey, but I will not travel among you. For you are a stubborn and a rebellious people. And if I did, I would surely destroy you along the way. Wow. Wow, what a moment, that's right, what a moment. They had the opportunity for God to walk with them for like right in the midst and in the middle would be the tabernacle and they would all see it and they would be able to go at any time and commune with God. Now they had to go way outside the camp and there was a tent out there, the tent of meeting. And God wanted to be with them and go with them the same way he wants to be with you and go with you. But what happened is a trial came, a 40-day trial, and they freaked out. And they lost their trust in God. They got scared. And there's no one in this room who hasn't experienced the same thing. That we have in some way hit a trial in our life and we go, okay, where are you, God? And all of a sudden you start doubting everything you know. Everything that's been told to you. I know this. I know this journey well. You doubt everything. And the harder the struggle and trial and the longer it is, the more you have to dig down inside of yourself and find something to believe. Because it overwhelms you. They were only for 40 days. But it caused them to be scared and turn away from God. And it's a good warning for us when we get in those situations, I know we're looking here and looking there and looking everywhere for help and someone to give us some kind of understanding. It's that when we go quiet and say, God, you are with me. You are with me. You are with me. David's and Solomon's temple that was built thousands of years later. Once again, you had a situation which exemplified the fact that God could not be amongst his people. Because only one guy could go into the temple every year. One guy, the high priest. And if he went in without a sacrifice being done to atone for his sin, he'd be struck dead in there. That's, there's, some, there's some traditions that say there was a rope attached to them in case so you could pull, <laughs> you could pull the guy out. Wow. Um, and some other things, some bells to make sure he was still moving so they could hear him, all kinds of traditions. I don't know if they're true or out there, 
But nonetheless, God said, no, you cannot, we cannot have communion. We can't. There's sin. There's sin. And he was serious about it. But then along came Jesus. Ephesians 2, 7. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us as shown in all he has done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. That's you and I. God saved you by his grace when you believed. Not when you knew, but when you believed. And you can't take credit for this. It's a gift from God. It is a gift from God. Yesterday I was driving home and I was thinking, I was talking to Tony about this before. And, you know, life has been very challenging for me the last couple of years. And um, I've had to fight every inch of this. Every inch I've had to fight this. Um, and I got, went through my mind, God, you're with me and you love me. But what came with it was a little bit of a revelation of it. A revelation of that. I know that's true, but every once in a while, God will drop revelation in you. And you'll go, you are with me. You are with me. All is well. You are with me. And I said, I was taking the garbage cans up out of the, the, off the street, and I said, Jesus, if you're with me, then you've defeated the world, and if you're with me, I can do it too. I can do it too. And you have those little moments where you have a revelation, and all of a sudden it builds faith in you. And you go, okay, 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 this is good. We really need God to give us revelation. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. But you know what's interesting about that? What's the first thing we do when we start getting saved? When we start getting saved? When we get saved. And when I say get saved, that's colloquialism for coming into the knowledge of our need for the forgiveness of Christ in our life. What's the first thing we start doing? We start building up what you should do. When I came to my faith at the church I was at, the first thing I got was a card, and on the back of that card had about seven things I should not do. Thus begins religion. Thus begins the law. And all of a sudden, what was given to me by grace could only be kept by doing all these right things. I didn't know any better. It was, it was what I call law-based grace. The holiness movement through the Pentecostal church has, I heard one pastor say, has destroyed more people because it caused them to go from a grace-given salvation to something in order to keep it, you have to earn it. And you have to stop drinking, you have to stop smoking, you have to wear a dress a certain length, you have to wear your hair a certain way, you have to speak a certain way, you can't eat certain foods, you can't go certain places, you can't talk to certain people, you can't wear makeup, you can't, do the, you can't dance, oh my heavens, you can't dance. Basically, what the holiness movement said is be miserable for the rest of your life, do everything that, that somebody else thinks you should be, and live an empty, vacant life hoping that your wonderful, astute 
recognition and obedience to all these laws will somehow maybe get you into heaven. Do you know what that is? That's Islam. And many, many other, all religions outside of Christianity is based on an adherence to a bunch of laws and regulations. The only law that you and I are obliged to is the law of Christ. Love God with all your heart and all your soul and love your neighbor as yourself. Are you going to do that perfectly? No, you're not. Right over here. And it's not cheap grace. I've heard preachers and it wounded me years ago talking about uh, this cheap grace that we have. There's nothing cheap about it. It costs Jesus a lot so that you could simply make a decision every day. Paul said, I crucify my flesh every day. Every day, Paul went to the cross. Every day, Paul recognized that he was a sinner needing forgiveness. Every day, he went to that thing and wrapped his arms around it and said, thank God for the cross because I would not make it any other way. The only thing God anoints in us is not our good works. It is our understanding of that and our willingness to accept it and say that is my righteousness. That's it. Everything else comes to the cross. Now, do we try not to go over and scream blue murder at our neighbor because his lawnmower's been going for four hours? Yeah, you try to do that. You try not to be crazy and do crazy things. But hopefully any human being would try to do that, not just a Christian. What a Christian's called to do, which is so much different, is to recognize the cross. That's what we do differently. We recognize the cross. God's plan was to once again have intimate relationship with us. That's what he was after for those thousands of years to Christ and now two more thousand years to now. He wants to have intimate relationship with you and I. I'm going to tell you something. This is intimate. When it said Moses spoke with God and God said, it's amazing the relationship that Moses and God had. It's the only one in, in all history. And he said, no other man do I have a relationship with like I have with Moses. And when Moses comes, I talk to him face to face. Do you know what that actually means? That means, I heard, I did a study on it, it so interesting in the Hebrew. It actually means that Moses and God met mouth to mouth. A kiss. <laughs> God's not afraid of intimacy. He said, well, what God kissing Moses? <laughs> the most intimate time you will ever experience on planet earth outside of God is when you are in a love true love relationship with your spouse and you are in intimate relationship physical relationship that is the most intimate you can be with a human being the enemy has been polluting it and distorting it and perverting it ever since it was created but what did Paul say? Paul said this is a representation of what? Christ and his church. The physical intimate act of sexual intercourse 
is a physical worldly representation of the intimacy God wants to have with you. First, we have to wipe away all of our preconceived and worldly distortions of what sexual contact looks like because it's made to be dirty and all of this craziness. But in its perfect form, when Moses spoke to God and God spoke to Moses, it was an intimate, loving thing to God. That's powerful. And that's the relationship that God wants to have with you. Romans 8 so you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba, Father, Abba, Daddy, like a child at the knee of the Father. Something beautiful happened to me uh, in, in October of 2020 when I first started into this journey of, of dealing with what I'm dealing with. And I was at a friend's house and trying to get prayer because you're running around from pillar to post trying to get someone to help you understand why you're feeling the anxiety and why all of this craziness was happening in my life. And uh, you have to work your way through all that. Um, but the person, she said to me, she said, Keith, could I just hug you? And I said, yeah. So I stood up and as we were hugging, a thought went through my head. A very clear picture. And it was of a little baby, maybe five, five months old, four, five months, six months old, sitting on the floor, all alone, crying. And it had to do with my childhood and, and things like that. But I said, Father, I'm so alone. I said it to myself in my mind. I said, Father, I'm all alone. And out of her mouth, as soon as I said that, to my head, she didn't hear anything, it was in my head. She said, oh, my son, I, you're not alone. I have you. I'm holding you. I'm hugging you. Now, either she was some kind of psychic, which she isn't. I know this woman. She has a profound gift of discernment. She didn't know I was thinking that. But God said, you're not alone. I am holding you. And you don't know how many times I've gone back to that experience when I thought God was gone. I'm alone. This has gone off the charts, Dad. I don't know what to do with this. And I just remember him saying through her, you're not alone. You're not improving it in the sense that I said it to myself. So you have this wonderful, there's no way she could have, that could have been coincidental. That was God saying something. And wherever you are, you are not alone. God is with you. So the process of what we're going to here, I wrap up with this. Jesus living a sinless life, enduring the judgment, punishment, and abandonment of the cross. And because he did these things, the resurrection happened and we received his righteousness. So we want the freedom, the power, and the relationship with God. We want that, that the resurrection offers, but Sin and shame and guilt still blocks us. I know it does because it blocks me all the time. It makes me feel that I can't go to God. It, 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 it causes all kinds of trip-ups and it, 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 just sin and shame, what you're shameful of, failures, all that stuff that comes. And, and there's no sense us saying that it doesn't exist in us because we have the cards. Remember we did the cards? 
and people wrote how they felt, those are all the things that stop us from jumping up on God's lap and saying, Abba, Father. That's what stops us. It makes us go, oh, but this, and oh, I can't get over this, and I'm still doing this, and or I failed in this area, and you might have failed 20 years ago, and still it's something that makes you feel less than when you go in front of God. It makes you feel that you failed Him. All those things. And because we're still a work in progress, God will reveal things sometimes about us that are very hard, very hard. Reg spoke last week about God revealing something to him, about a, a perception that he had which had really hindered him from entering into the fullness of what God wanted. For years, Reg, what, 20, 30 years, more. 40 years. And God revealed it. It wasn't a sin so much, but it was just a perception of himself. And we have perceptions of ourselves that make us think that God only loves us this much. He doesn't love us this much. He might answer some of my prayers, but he won't answer all of them. He's with us. He's with me sometimes when I'm doing good, but when I'm not, he turns his back. No, that's when he comes closest. The enemy accuses us, of course, until the day we die. So we need to give the forgiveness, we need to take the forgiveness and the cleansing of the cross so that we can enter into the resurrection. Now, here's what I want to do. We all have those things. We all have them. And what I want to do today, is, like we want to jump right into the resurrection and, and everything that God has given us. And it's good. We can, and we're, we can do that. But I want you to think about the things, the guilts, the shames, the things that perceptions of yourself, the things that stop you from coming into that full expectation when you wake up in the morning that God is with you. Or at the end of the day that makes you, stops you from saying, thank you for this day, Lord. And to take those things, because Paul did it every day, Paul did it every day, and he had something to take to the cross. He said, I crucify the flesh every day. And I want you to come up and just take one of these, one of these things, and as God brings to you, or as you just bring it up yourself, stuff that is hanging, guilt or shame or whatever it might be, to just come and take one of these, and just hang it on the cross. Like that. Just hang it on the cross. And hopefully we have enough for everybody. I don't think, if we don't, we can make some more pretty fast. But that's what I, I want to do today. Just, and if there's nothing, you don't have to. Don't, if you sit in your chair and you don't go up, that doesn't mean you're somehow a lesser Christian for some reason. It's not that. It's just those who today want to take something and just say thank you Jesus for taking that thank you that that has been atoned for and paid for and I can trust you with it so father I just ask now Holy Spirit that you would come and just show us what it is that you want us to hang on the cross we know that Jesus hung there and he was the record of our wrongs.
But we come today and we access that again. And we come and bring it to the cross and hang it on the cross and, and cover it with the blood that was shed there. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Liz, you can just play the communion song. I just have it set to just roll. And as the music plays, uh, as you come up, after you do that, just come over here and take one of the communion. Take your communion with you, and then you can just sit back down.
Isn't that beautiful? Yeah, you know, Jerry had a good idea. He said, maybe we should have this here every Sunday. Amen. And when we come in, you know, in, in, in church that I grew up in, you would go and light a candle. It was the same thing. It was the same, God, I'm lighting something here to recognize a need or a... And just have ribbons available every week to come in. Not a, not a bad idea. Amen. Bill's going to do communion for us. Thank you, Bill. It's interesting uh, when Pastor Keith texted me this morning about doing communion. And I just happened to be watching um, a program, and they were talking about the resurrection. And um, I'm going to share just a few scriptures. Uh, the first one is going to be from Exodus 12. But in it, it's talking about Moses and, 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 and the, the slaying of the lamb. But God had given Pharaoh nine chances 
to repent. How many chances has God given us? I was thinking before I was saved, I heard the gospel many times. And I laughed at it and I mocked it until God finally brought me to that place of brokenness where I reached out to him. So before the last plague was placed on the Egyptians, then Moses Moses summoned all of the elders, elders of Israel and said to them, go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and both sides of the door frame. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until the morning. And so this was the symbolism of their escape out of Egypt, that God was making a way for them to be delivered uh, through the death angel that was going to pass upon the Egyptians. But only those who had the blood on the door would escape. Thank God when Jesus sees us, he sees the blood on the doors of our heart. Then moving into John 1.29. Now John the Baptist, folks thought that maybe John the Baptist was the Messiah. And so they would say, are you he? The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away from the sins of the world. John knew through revelation that the Lamb of God, Jesus was the Lamb of God. And it's interesting that when Jesus died on the cross that day, they stopped offering sacrifices. The Jews stopped at offering sacrifices. So anyway, in 1 Corinthians 11.24, Jesus is now at the Last Supper. And he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. There's a message itself in the body. We are the body of Christ. And when one suffers, we all suffer. When I was in Cuba and asked to share a few words before the congregation, I I shared from Psalm 16 where David says, Next to you, Lord, I love those who love you. I love you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I really do. And so he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do it in remembrance of me. Let's break of the body of Christ together. And he said, this is the cup. The cup of the New Testament. This is my blood for the remission of sins. Drink together. when Jesus was on the cross one of the last things that he said it is finished can we say it together it is finished it is finished one more time it It is is finished finished. there's nothing that we have to do it's a finished work Amen. amen thank you Bill yeah it's it's a wonderful freedom that we have and we have to work at walking in it every day by reminding ourselves of what has happened on the cross, what happened in the resurrection, and, uh, and we'll see great things in our life. 
time for an offering. Lord, we thank you. We give back today. Father, we live in a world of money. That's how everything works, Dad, except when you show up miraculously and make things appear. But for the most part, it takes money. But we give this money not just to do your work, but also to give an act of worship and honor and obedience to you. In Jesus' name, amen.